Hello, and welcome to another episode of Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire episode 84, Jamie 5 in a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me as Liza Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaNarborGold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, on the Mason Monthly Podcast, or maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter. If you are uh, listening to our podcast in this day and age, you may be practicing <laughs> social distancing. Uh, but we are being very responsible, and we are socially distancing ourselves while talking about A Song of Ice and Fire, and glad to have you guys aboard this week in this crazy, crazy world. <laughs> Yeah, in these strange times. Um, thank you. You know, I saw a couple of people saying that we are one of the podcasts that will be keeping them company while they, you know, self-quarantine slash social just social distance. Okay, I'm, Margo. I'm fine. <laughs> no, I'm doing fine. Sorry, everyone. Social distance. It's been so long, you know, since I've spoken to people <laughs> or to anyone that I'm like, how does what? No, that's not true. I'm like in meetings all day. But... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's rough. So it's rough. Thank you for keeping us in your hearts and in your ears, in your lives. Yes, you guys are very much in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds, but especially in our email inbox. Uh, we've been getting some really good emails from you guys, and we wanted to read a couple emails today from the Ice and Fire Con giveaway competition, where we made you guys email us about your favorite POVs for no reason other than we get to read them on air. And talk about them. Um, we really didn't judge you guys by your POVs. But Ice and FireCon was postponed uh, because of the craziness of COVID-19, I hear. So that will be happening the weekend of Halloween? This is Halloween. This is Halloween. Halloween. I'm not going to lie. It kind of sounds like that's going to be lit. Like skeletons everywhere. Oh, wow. Well, the Skelly Party will finally be apt. Yeah. It, it's its own weekend. Yes. The whole weekend yeah. will be a Skelly Party. I'm excited. True. True, true, true. Well, we still have some great emails from that Ice and Fire Con giveaway. We hope to see a bunch of you there. I know I'll still be there. Eliana, I don't know if you still will be there, but I, I hope so, because otherwise we're divorcing. I intend to still be there. You know, it was a rough decision, but I think a lot of events this season are going to have to make that same decision. So, Yeah, for sure. Well, we got an email from our friend, Michael. Michael sent us an email and said... Uh, Reading Jamie's chapters are a different experience than other point of views. It feels like I'm in an actual, if awful, person's head. He's just doing what he can in the moment. He doesn't have some grandiose sense of what he's doing or his place in things. He doesn't care if he's a player or a pawn. He just lives life like the rest of us. Well, maybe not quite like the rest of us. <laughs> I mean, I have no siblings to live my life like Jamie Lannister, so there's that. Yeah, I don't know what this means either, but I like it. <laughs> I like it. I do too. It is interesting. The idea that he's like an... I don't know if he's awful or not. I don't know. I'm just like so swayed. Yeah, I like the the aspect of the he's just like us in the way that he thinks and assesses situations. That humanization that George has given him has definitely benefit during this. There's that and like, I think there's an aspect of him that is also... So, of course, tied in with Tyrion's POV. A lot of it, of course, people have talked about like how they play full to each other, but I think they have such a similar sense of humor in many ways. You can, like, see how they're brothers because of that, so... And I think that's part of why people feel drawn to Jamie as well, his sense of humor. Because, like, Tyrion's also an awful person, but everyone's like, oh, he's funny. 
Yeah, but I feel like Tyrion sometimes can come off as really harsh try-hard humor, right? Where Jamie is really relatable. Jamie is super relatable humor. Jamie's humor does feel a lot more grounded, a lot more down-to-earth, where Tyrion's is sometimes it's either too cynical or a little too ridiculous. And I think that makes sense for their characters, right? Yeah, of course no, Jamie feels easygoing. Things have been easy for him until now, except for the part where he tried to be romantically forever with his twin sister and you know the part where well we'll get to it in later in this episode but for now we have another letter also about jamie being their favorite pov hey girls my favorite part of jamie's pov is simply this he's a deeply emotional character who allows himself to be molded by others and because of his unique past is treated singularly by others he, like his brother, both deliberately and involuntarily as a defense mechanism, is a reflection of the world around him. At the start of his arc, this is obvious, and this well-tread ground. He reflects on how the accusing glare of Ned Stark was enough to literally define his character for the years to come. This sticks with him throughout his arc. At the end of A Dance with Dragons, he is still defined consciously by the accusing glare of others. He gives up on potential avenues of compromise with the Blackfish at their river and parlay because the Blackfish's tone and eyes remind him of Ned Stark. Between these two radical examples and over the course of his arc, it is simply downright interesting. It's in italics, so I said it with emphasis. <laughs> to see someone in Jamie's position and with his levels of sensitivity and cultural awareness interact with those around him. It has been said a thousand times before, but his inclusion as a POV is a masterstroke by George, even if the character is ultimately by the merit of his worst moments as privileged, rotten, and spoiled as his father and siblings. Matthew Hurwitz, who is the writer of this letter, also says that one of their choices was Davos, but felt that was well-tried ground. I don't know if we got that many Davos I think we got writers. one. Maybe one. Yeah. But I mean, like, I agree. I think Jamie's POV is a masterstroke. Yeah. by George. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would never have appreciated the plot as much. Um, I think it gave him kind of a ground also to add some details into the rebellion that he just hadn't found a way to put in, which is great. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that, um, even when it comes down to Jamie thinking on his past, uh, you know, like almost marry- or almost being betrothed to Liza, or, you know, the Blackfish yeah. as his war hero. Understanding him, and I think it's really great because George's message is obviously very anti-war right like george is saying war is bad it hurts people however he's also showing like the guy you thought was just a bad guy isn't just a bad guy he's also like a war veteran with ptsd who grew up with really a shitty dad and never had the right kind of love at home never had the supervision or love that he needed to grow i mean he could have been you know arthur dane like he says but in some ways, like, he's also a good mirror to Ned. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about this, you know, both having quote-unquote bastards. I mean, Jamie literally does, but... Yeah, it makes by what right does the wolf judge the lion that much more powerful when you consider that. Absolutely. Um, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but thank you to Matthew Hurwitz, who I'm going to read his titles that he has included here. AKA Proud Soy Boy of Summer Hall and Swing Dancer with Dragons. Matthew, do you swing dance? Please send us a TikTok. Of you I don't have a TikTok yet, but I like yet. my cousins 
Okay, my cousins were all trying to encourage me to get one, so I might have one soon. I don't know. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't specifically think I'm ready for that as far as youth culture, you know? I'm, I'm, what else am I going to do right now, okay? I've been really into Instagram during this whole quarantine business. I don't know if you've noticed, but lately I've just been going to town. That's true. You have been on more. I think I understand it now. Like, I didn't really get it before, and now I'm just like, what is this? What do you, what do you not get? That, all of it. I mean... Hmm, interesting. The youth. The youth. Uh, yeah, TikTok is definitely youth culture. We went to uh, the Emma premiere when it came out a couple oh. weeks ago, and the director was there, but this woman, very kind woman, but she was uh, some sort of radio host from a local station, and she was... Supposed to be moderating, right? And like making sure questions got asked and answered and letting everyone do their thing. But she was up there trying to do a pretty solid five to ten minutes of comedy and making jokes in a kind of an older indie film kind of crowd because it was at our hipster theater. Um, How twee. Yeah, making TikTok jokes when the crowd was like mostly 30s and up at earliest. Like it wasn't, uh, it was just not, didn't hit, didn't hit. You know, I was like, ooh, ooh, sweetheart. TikTok more like did not. <laughs> Whatever that but means. That almost worked in my head. Well, let's jump into our lightning round. I feel like we've been gone forever. Now that you're back, we have a good lightning round to jump on into. I just think it's so funny that you you say that, but we, we have kept our schedule. Well, listen. Anyways. <laughs> Tyrion 4. Tyrion maneuvers through landmines like Simon Silvertongue and banging his new underage wife. Ending his day of work with telling the wall to promote Jano Slint. Hmm. 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 Vote blue no matter who. I'm just kidding. Oh my god. <laughs> Sam will do. Sam and Gilly flee the bloodshed at Craster's Keep. Mormont's final words ringing in Sam's ears. Arya 6. Sandor Clegane faces judgment in the Eye of R'hllor, but the gods have more plans for him yet. I can just imagine you, like, fist pumping and really also patting yourself on the back after writing that. Thanks. <sighs> I see it. Uh, Catelyn 4, Hostertully dies, and then stuff gets... worse. The Starks are forced to make amends with the phrase, Learning Winterfell has been burnt to the ground. Oh, and that a third of their forces are gone. And we're going to a wedding? God, it's gonna be great! <laughs> <laughs> Davos 4. Davos gets a promotion and fulfills his hand job while Melisandre burns a few slugs. Are you proud? Oh, I've never been prouder. <laughs> and that brings us to Jamie 4. And for this summary, you know, it's that, it's that iconic Jamie chapter that everyone loves, you know? You all know what it is. Today we talk about 16-year-old boys, their successes, their failures. Look, I know that reads football. creepy, but it did not mean it to be creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a little, but, you know... It's worth talking about. <laughs> Start out with Jamie. He's in the bathhouse in Heron Hall. He's being led into it, and there Brienne is scrubbing angrily away at herself. This is such like a, a tone-setting first intro, right? Brienne's scrubbing angrily with a hard, stiff brush. She's trying to scrub away at her body and this like new little world that she's captive in. It's gotten her nothing but physically assaulted this entire trip. Uh... So her scrubbing at her skin, the opening of it, I love it. Very, uh, very out damn spot, you know? Yeah, and I, it, it, I think of it contrasted with like the scene of what Arya with Lady Smallwood. Arya is not the one scrubbing at her skin, but mm. the rest of the world is doing so, and 
obviously, you know, there's there's similarities between Brienne and Arya. Well, not to mention that Arya has, you know, trailed exactly where Jamie and Brienne have come to this whole entire ride. Arya's already been True. there. True. True. And Bruce Bolton doesn't know it. And he's all like, I don't know where that girl is. Okay. Ironically. Interesting you say that. Yeah. Jamie tells her to be careful not to scrub off all of her skin, and Brienne modestly covers herself at his voice. He notes that her hands are as big as Gregor Clegane's and that they're covering her nipples, which he thinks look too small for her body. Well, that's great for you. Some people are into that. Apparently Jamie, Jamie is. She asks, He doesn't know that. He's like, I don't know this. Is the weirdest boner. The weirdest boner. Just admit. Just admit that this is your type. Yeah, it's like the episode of Broad City where Alana meets the girl at the uh, event that looks exactly like her and she starts dating her and Abby's like, you don't get why you like her? And she's like, no, she's like, she is you. You guys look exactly the same, dude. Like, that's what this is. (laughs) It's it's, uh, Maybe from Arrested Development. Yes! (laughs) Right? That was her name, right? Maybe? Yeah, Baby. Yeah, because there was like a lot of puns around it. Um, Oh my god. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like how... Cersei feels about her kids and how she loves them so much, but then, like, also it turns out she doesn't because they're just extensions of herself, so it's, like, an opposite thing for Jamie. Like, he's like, oh, yeah. why do I love Brienne? I don't love Brienne. Who said that? <laughs> Who said that? Yeah, Cersei, Cersei and Jamie, both different versions, both reflections <laughs> of Alana. In fact, did you know George R. R. Martin actually said, and you can find it on So Speak Martin, that Broad City was, like, a, a, a huge inspiration on a song of ice and fire. So, <laughs> Brienne asks why Jamie is here, and it's to get clean for Bruce's fancy dinner party later. Lord Bolton insists I sup with him, but he neglected to invite my fleas. That's too bad. They better find a new home. Uh, the man who led Jamie in helps him unlace his breeches and orders him to leave after he's done. And also, to stop staring at Brienne's titties... He's like, don't look at her boobs. Good for you, Jamie. He sends the woman attending Brienne away as well, and the servants listen to him. I love something here. There's this line, the habit of obedience went deep. It's noted when the guards leave at Jamie's commands, and Jamie basically gives commands in the Lord's voice, right? Maybe this is to show his future going through the Riverlands a little bit there with that mm-hmm. commandful voice, but I, I thought that was something interesting. We've talked a lot about the Lord's voice. Yeah, it's something that did stick out that I hadn't thought about until now, you know, in this reread, um, how he still has that class power, even though if he feels that he doesn't have that fighting power anymore, right? Yeah. And that's something that Tyrion also definitely has. And he doesn't acknowledge it till like, way later on. And it's like, no, Tyrion, you and Penny aren't the same. The tubs are fashioned like the Free City's bathhouses, and Jamie climbs into Brienne's tub slowly. I actually thought this was kind of interesting. I was like, wow, so Harrenhal was very stylish. Has the Have the Free Cities not changed their bathtubs in years? Or, like, was Harrenhal very forward? Unsure. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the discussion people came for. Jamie feels very old. So I actually looked it up because the line here says that Jamie feels 109 years old. To see if there was anything significant that happened like 109 years ago in Westeros. And for that exact date, that there isn't. I, I thought I was like really onto something, but I wasn't. Brienne tries to shrink away from Jamie saying that, dog, there are like a bunch of other tubs. Literally go into any of the other ones. And he's like, no, it's fine. I don't want what's between your bruised and battered thighs. And then he sinks into the tub, his right arm resting outside for Kyburn's instructions. 
Well, I thought it was really interesting uh, about like the wood that they're made of. In Aria in Clash, I think it's like Aria 6, I want to say, we learned that the bathhouse is made of stone and timber and that there's like only one entrance to the room and it sets it up and I'm I'm interested in like trade-wise. So if it's in the fashion of the free cities, does that also mean it probably is using things that came from the free cities? And I was hmm. also curious about uh, the influence that maybe the Tairoshi may have had over that when it came to not in the oh. dance but after yeah after how strong was gone um i don't know it was just no. a thought i was having if there was any influence with the tairoshi with its rebuilding but very interesting yeah but nothing nothing alas i come to you empty-handed well damn uh same i know the mood <laughs> Uh, so then Jamie asks Brienne if she wants him to pull out, and by that I mean pull him out if he faints. I'm not responding to that. I'm done. No Lannister has ever drowned in his bath, and I don't mean to be the first. Why should I care how you die? He swore a solemn vow. He smiled as a red flush crept up the thick white column of her neck. He's really, like... Noting a lot about her body, and I'm just gonna say the solemn vow and like her blushing. Is it flirting about marriage? Is it? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't think they're gonna get married because I don't think happiness happens for me, <laughs> especially in this book series. No. But but a lot of the language basically is marriage. I mean, marriage, as we've learned, is just a paper shield in these books, right? So, I mean, what's marriage really? Like maybe it's just yeah. like a lifelong bond of love. Maybe it's, you know, someone putting a cloak around your shoulders. Oh, what kind of cloak? Anyways, what about a white and bloody cloak? I don't know. So Brienne modestly turns away from him and he starts teasing her. He's scrubbing himself with a brush in a very disconnected manner. And the word actually used here, I really loved this. And I didn't even realize what a fancy word George pulled out on me here. He said desultorily, which is like a $7 word. D-E-S-U-L-T-O-R-I-L-Y, which, like, when spelled out, you're just like, oh, really? Um, but, yeah, no, I, I I don't know that I've heard that word, like, in a fictional fantasy piece. Yeah. I don't think I've ever, like, really... Yeah. I don't think I've often come across that word. The definition, according to dictionary.com, lacking in consistency, constancy, or visible order, disconnected, fitful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. But now we know. Everyone used that word, desultorily. Uh, Jamie's left hand is not working well in comparison to his right, but the dirt dissolves in the water anyway. Brienne continues standing with her back to him, and he asks her if his stump is distressing her. You ought to be pleased. I've lost the hand I killed the king with. The hand that flung the Stark boy from that tower. The hand I'd slide between my sister's thighs to make her wet. He thrust his stump at her face. No wonder Renly died with you guarding him. Rude. Yeah, quick quick 180 over there. Right? <laughs> but in this slide, I do think this is really interesting. Um, Jamie's explicitly linking his hand, right, to that sexual act regarding, I guess, his sister's thighs. Because, you know, he's just going to be open about that. But for all the discussion we've been doing in general... And about linking Jamie's hand and his masculinity and, you know, the essays that we've been citing from Lowe to talk about gender again. Like, it's worth noting that Jamie doesn't ever really think explicitly, like, 
the words of like, oh, not having a hand makes me less than a man or less of a man, right? He thinks about some of that stuff later on, but he doesn't think about it in terms of manhood as explicitly. He, he usually likens his hand to like acts or power or fighting or sex, you know, and obviously those the undertones of that are about masculinity. Um, and I say this because Jamie's perspective and understanding it, as important as it is for later on understanding Brienne's POVs and characters, I think it's also really important to compare to Cersei's interiority. Like, Jamie, you know, a lot of guys, right, they don't think about what it means to be a man until they're unable to, like, fulfill those roles anymore, like, striving for it. And even then... Jamie tends to think of it in terms of ability and usefulness, whereas Cersei very, very obviously and often thinks about her gender precisely because of her relationship to Jamie. Because as a child, like she was able to see what it was like to be treated as a man. Well, and something that's in that too has to do with like the emasculinating of like the Kingsguard, right? Like for him, mm. he thinks of his sword hand being gone, not just necessarily his hand. Um, he thinks of it as his sword hand. And like you said, he's kind of noticing these things like fucking his sister are the things he used to be able to do with that hand. Uh, the things that defined him. He's going through this whole list of things that define him, that make him Jamie Lannister, that make him a man. Things that his whole life he's been thinking make him a man, where there are things that other people in the books kind of see as being a man. Like Benjen says to John, you'll never be a father if you join the Night's Watch. Like, you don't know what you're giving up. Well, Jamie had to give that up. He didn't get to be a dad. You know, like, he never even got an opportunity to think that's what makes someone to be a man. His definition of what a man is is so different. So losing his sword hand to sure. him does, in my opinion, make him feel like less of a man. Um, I think he's just coming to terms with that loss. And in naming these crimes of things he's done here with Brienne, his sister is listed as a crime in the public's eyes. But this is kind of Jamie beginning to reckon with these crimes and not only is he dealing finally with the loss of his hand but the loss of these things that he's done that he had control over in some aspects and he probably shouldn't have done a few of them right we know this we can all admit this that jamie yeah. has done a couple things that maybe weren't so sunshiny uh it reminds me a lot of sandor like fucking his sister yeah like fucking his sister uh it reminds me of sandor breaking down to Arya before he quote unquote dies right like sobbing like i did this i did this awful thing like i should have done worse i'm a monster this is jamie this whole entire chapter is jamie being like i've never been allowed to say any of this bullshit out loud to anyone anyone yeah that's true and he's just like whatever fuck it but also at the same time what is it that like yeah, what is it about like these like pained men? You know, they're needing needing women to tell them like, oh, it's all right. Well, and that's like whatever. my one but big Arya problem. Do it. You know, with this whole Jamie Brienne dynamic is that whole like they improve each other and blah blah blah. I get it, but it does feel like some of the heavy lifting is happening on one side. That's all. Yeah, Brienne rises to her feet. She splashes hot water everywhere. Jamie gets a peek at her pubes, and he's like, uh, "Why am I hard?" What is this feeling? She's hairier than Cersei, apparently. And he thinks, maybe I've been away from Cersei too long. That's what's going on. Haha, <laughs> unless. Unless. <laughs> he mutters his apologies out of nowhere, and he's like, 
I'm grateful for your protection on the way here. I'm sorry that I said that. And she doesn't really know whether he's joking or not, as being acquaintances with Jamie tends to go. And she's like, are you mocking me? And he's like, you're thick as a castle wall, looking at you, Dunk. And he says, I was trying to make a truce, but she doesn't trust him because he is. That's right, folks. A kingslayer. He goes on to tell Brienne that he hated Robert more than he hated Ares. I hear they've named you Kingslayer, he said to me at his coronation feast. Just don't think to make it a habit. Ha ha ha. And he laughed. Why is it that no one names Robert Oathbreaker? He tore the realm apart, yet I am the one with shit for honor. Brienne, of course, argues that he did it for love, but Jamie says it was for pride, for a cunt, and for a pretty face, which... Okay, not entirely wrong. Not that Liana is only those things, but Robert sure didn't think she was more than that. Yeah, I do think that is what Jamie's saying. And like, definitely agree with him. We talked a bit about Robert and the relationship Jamie has with Robert a bit in that first chapter, kind of touching on it. It's, I think it's really noteworthy here because like, you know, you and I were very much in the camp of judging Robert for projecting so much onto Liana when it seems like he doesn't really understand her, he's like, yeah, Liana would have totally let me do this. And Ned's like, no, she fucking wouldn't have, dude. Like, do you even know her? And Jamie kind of says as much in a way here that it was less about Liana and more about Robert and his ego. You know, you just said that, but at the same time, it makes me wonder if he's also projecting a little bit too, because if it was so easy to just go find some other pretty girl to fall in love with, why haven't you done it, Jamie? I, th- I do think that there's something there of, like, he could have, but at the same time... I mean, besides the Kingsguard thing. Well, also Cersei's abusive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a big part of it as well, too. So I think that's part of it. And, like, not that Jamie's like, the best towards Cersei either, right? Like, they have mm-hmm. a very toxic relationship, and I think that's a big part of it. Whereas Lyanna wasn't that interested in Robert, as we can see. She's like, yeah, he's cool. He's my bro. He's my friend. Kind of like you, but not into him, and I don't think he's actually into me. Uh, (laughs) I think he's into you, Ned. Anyways, yet at the same time, like, coming back to that projection, like, I think Robert gets something really interesting done to his character, because sure, he's projecting stuff onto Liana, but I think he becomes a source of projection for a lot of the men around him. Especially, like, they feel especially jealous towards him. Like, Jamie in that first chapter, like, felt jealous of how Robert can just publicly be with Cersei and that he can just quote-unquote access Cersei in a way that Jamie can't. So I think that, yeah, like, as you were saying, like, how come Jamie can't get over Cersei? Like, there's a lot of hypocrisy there in the way that he judges Robert regarding that love versus pride statement. Yeah. I think that you're really on to something, and I think it's that lust for power in a way, too, especially because Jamie's never had, you know, really power to wield of his own. He thought he was going to, and then he got kind of, you know, bamboozled with Ares. But, like, I mean, there's that line, right? Like, we could call it the war for Cersei's cunt. That's what he wants to be able to do. He wants to be able to go to war to have what he loves. Like, I think there is a certain amount of jealousy of having the power to do that safely. Like, Robert had people backing him. Robert had a half a nation or so backing him in this. Robert was able to bring enemies from their knees, from them saying, oh, please, Robert, spare me to be their friends still in the end. You know, Robert had the power to do that. Jamie has never had that. Yeah, I think that's interesting what you're saying. Um, 
there's a very, very, very strong romantic narrative, right, around the idea that Robert did it for love. It, it happens for Rhaegar, too, even. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, Rhaegar tore the realm apart for love, right? We see that that's how Daenerys interprets it. Uh, that's allegedly what the show told us happened <laughs> for some reason. Um, and I think we see that Jamie held those ideals of knighthood and heroism as very true for a long time. I mean, he was a kid and even now as we've talked about his like kind of arrested development himself, but not the show, <laughs> being able to fight a war over Cersei for Cersei's hand, for Cersei, that's very much a very strong narrative about chivalry maybe in a way too, or romance. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, when it comes down to it, he can't, right? And he gets judged for the heroism that he's done. And, you know, he's wondering, how come Robert never gets judged harshly? Because he's wrapped up in this strong narrative, right? As strongly as Jamie is. And it kind of also reminds me of the way that Stannis Baratheon feels about mm. Robert. Because, like, Stannis is super angry. He's like, how come I can't just give people fucking water without them being like, mm. And everyone's like, oh, Robert's the best. He's all like, Robert could pee in a cup. And everyone would be like, yeah, I love this. And for both Jamie and Cersei, as we get into later in this chapter, I think it comes down to what we were saying about like those, those narratives and being able to play out those stories that they wanted to. Because they didn't get what they feel were due based on the stories that they were told that the world tells them, right? And that's a big part of their disillusionment. For Stannis, a big part of it is like Robert never acknowledges his accomplishments, he feels. And for Jamie, he's like, oh, well, the world, especially Ned Stark, doesn't acknowledge the one good heroic thing I've ever done. There's this line here of, like, I think it passing odd that I'm loved by one for a kindness I never did and reviled by so many for my finest act when Jamie and Catelyn speak. And I call this out because I feel like this monologue from Jamie about what happened at King's Landing is a sequel to the monologue that he gives to Catelyn Stark. They're both very similarly written in a way, you know, of, like... So do you know what happened with Brandon and Rickard, right? And he explains everything. And I think that the two are paired, right? Yeah. Like the first is with Brandon and Rickard's death, especially because it's presented through Catelyn's POV, I think is meant to establish for us not the goodness of Jamie. He says that himself. He's like, no, I don't want you to think I'm good just because Aerys did this shit thing. What it is is providing the foundation for like Aerys was terrible. Yeah, we all talk about how he's mad around the Seven Kingdoms and he's like, but none of you know how terrible and cruel he actually was. That's why we fought this whole war. And then this monologue from Jamie is a sequel to that. It's the other side of like, hey, we already established Ares is horrible. This is him upping the stakes and expanding that cruelty to the rest of the city. And by the same token, like the counterweight to that is Ares was worse than you think and it's Jamie is better than you think for the readers. Mm. I like that. And I like that it's also juxtaposed against like he only gives this truth about Ares when he's put up like to his limits, right? Like here he is mm. thievery, but the tone's different because with Brienne, you would expect him to be a total condescending asshole about it. Like he kind of was with Lady Stark, right? Like he wasn't really sensitive about how he gave her this information. He was like, oh, you want a story, bitch? I'm going to give you a story. Yeah. But with Brienne, like she is the one that's pushing him and she's like tell me tell me like what are you saying like why would you say that blah blah blah. give me the proof like give me the fucking receipts dog and 
he kind of like this was his chance to confess at his height of his fever of his biggest crimes and I think it's just such an interesting little bit that like he's pressed to do it at these moments right like he would never have done it under any normal circumstances but here he is either fevery and dirty and drunk or you know in a pit or in a bathhouse and this is how it happens the circumstances are very similar to both. It's like his lowest points or whatever when he has no power. Mm-hmm. Because, I don't know. I'm going to be real. Jamie has big bottom energy. And <laughs> he says it, you know, to one of, to Brienne. Big romantic interest. And I'm not going to act, you know, into Catelyn Stark. Big hate fuck potential. I mean, so anyway, Jamie tries to make a fist. <laughs> He remembers his hand is gone, and pain shoots up his arm. Brienne argues, Robert rode to save the realm. But Jamie continues to go off. He's like, my brother set the black water afire. And he says, Ares would have bathed in that wildfire if he could. The Targaryens were mad for fire. He begins to feel lightheaded and not himself, and he eases lower into the water, speaking through his fever. At first, he speaks a little nonsense toward her, first about how he wore his gold armor, as we noted before, and then about Ares exiling the dancing griffins. He launches into a lot of good stuff, like why he, and then he wonders why he's telling this absurd, ugly child all of this. Because you love her. Pretty much. Because no one's but- ever let you? Because you want your mommy? <laughs> Kind of. I mean, that's pretty much what's happening. Uh, men. Um, so I, I thought this like language that he calls him dancing griffins here was interesting and weird. Like, just fucking call him John Connington, dude. But like, call, keep calling the other guy Rosart. There's Crayola. Anyways, um, you don't actually get John Connington mentioned throughout the story until A Storm of Swords. So like this book. And I, I do think that George only fleshed him out slash conceived him in between Clash and Storm. But again, it's weird that he calls them dancing griffins. I'm like, what's up here? Because it feels similar to the language of how the reeds talk about the people going on at the tourney at Harrenhal. He's like, yeah. And the wolf maiden did X thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's the and language used to talk about the rebellion. Yeah, they're all like related stories. So it's one way that it codes you like, hey, these all are part of the same canon. Um and then after, like, Jamie starts it all off there, he, I feel like his language starts to devolve, right? And more of himself, his own voice starts to come out. He started out with this language of the rebellion, but also this language of fairy tales. Uh, it almost was like he was dis- distancing himself, only to come back and be like, actually, I'm a part of this story, too. You know, and making the case for why in this fairy tale, with dragons and griffins, he thought that as a dragon slayer, he'd be the hero. And then next thing he knows, he's like, wait, hold on. Why am I the villain? That is really interesting considering uh, Jamie is uh, not the hero like he wants to be or like he wanted to be. Absolutely. You kill the dragon, you get the girl, and then life is good. Yeah, you kill the dragon, you're like, is that? Nope, that's St. George, not St. Patrick. I I missed it. Oh, sorry. Say St. Patrick. (laughs) You're doing great. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I had something there. I thought I really did. He remembers the king putting pressure on Lewin Martell, one of his king's guard members, reminding him that Elia and her children were in his control and sending Lewin to command the 10,000 Dornish spears in the king's road. Yeah, this detail, I feel that Jamie throws it in 
and remembers it, especially because Ares pulled the same shit right on Tywin and is like, hey, I got your son, Jamie. He's right here. Yeah, absolutely. The same hostage stuff. And it exists to remind you of Ares's cruelty, absolutely, and him using that power over other people in many ways, wrong ways. But it also makes me wonder if there are certain implications for the future it might have, right? Like, especially with the the hostages in Marine, for example. Um mm. Makes me think about that a little bit. I'm not sure if that detail kind of pops out because of that this time. Derry and Selmy are sent off to rally men at Stony Sept, and Rhaegar arrives back at King's Landing, convincing his father to bring Tywin back into the fold. But Tywin never responds to Aerys's summons. Aerys becomes afraid. Tywin just left it on, like, red. red. Total red. He's seen. Saint. <laughs> Varys was in his ear to make sure he didn't miss seeing any traitors, and Ares became more and more paranoid, commanding wildfire caches be placed throughout King's Landing. Lord Chelstead, flavor of the day, hand of the week, grew suspicious at the pyromancer's coming and goings, and he confronted Ares. Jamie had thought that Chelstead was craven until then, and Chelstead begged and threatened until finally he quit, flinging his hand chain onto the floor. Ares had him burnt alive and handed the chain to Rose Art, the crayon company, uh, Rose Art, uh, to the pyromancer Rose Art, the very man who helped cook Rickard Stark into a tender rack of ribs. Oh my god, you really did that. I did. I thought it was important, actually. Uh, <laughs> did you think that that part was important? Was that important to you, Chloe, to say that? To liken um, Rickard to ribs? I think it was Brian of Farce who sometimes comments on our Podbean post, but he commented uh, and said, Chloe wrote, or you had said, Chloe wrote that about something about barbecuing Rickard. Oh no, that's Jimmy. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. And they were like, we know. <laughs> Uh, um, I, I do think it's important to point out Jamie thought Chelstead was craven, but Chelstead still had the gall to call Ares out. That's a really important kind of like, oh, Jamie is noticing that about somebody that maybe he was wrong about his feelings originally. Yeah, it's, I think, important here, especially because like, yeah, as you said, he commends him for that. Ned... Certainly wasn't Craven, right? But it makes me think of Ned Stark when he was like telling Robert, like, why did we go to war if not to stop the deaths of children? And Robert internally is like, I don't know, a pretty face, pride, a kind. A kind. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> um, but it goes to show that Chelsea was in many ways morally bankrupt by just like following Ares, but at, at least he did the right thing here, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to stop blowing up all of King's Landing and refusing to be parts of this part of this. Maybe hoping that, hey, if I'm not part of this chain, maybe it won't even go through. It might like all fall apart. Which I understand, you know, sometimes a good project manager, they're gone, you're like, fuck, I don't know what we're doing. You know, you lose one important person. Chelsea was like, maybe I'm important. But you know, uh, I, I would argue that he didn't know, you know, is kind of what it seemed like. He just didn't know how bad it was until he was finally in the hand seat and he said, Oh fuck, this guy's crazy and he was like done in a week. Yeah, that's true. He wasn't he wasn't hand very long, you know, yeah. you're right. And so, I mean, for him to do it that early on does also, to an extent, speak to his moral character. But yeah, I mean, it, and it goes to show like, you know, Chelsea did it, Ned did it. And I mean, we've, we've, we've like cast some aspersions on Barrison before for it, but like, Barrison could have done it, but he didn't. Yeah. But that's the thing. It's like, yeah, he's doing his job, but how do you praise someone for doing their job when the job's bullshit, right? Like, I had a manager yeah. who was working at the place I work, and 
he came in and said, hey, you guys are great at being firefighters, but you're not good at doing your own jobs. You guys have been fighting fires for so long instead of doing your actual job that you're not doing your job now. You're just like living emergency to emergency, which is very true. Total, total shit job. But, um, but it's that kind of same thing, right? Like, I don't know. And I don't, it's like Barristan followed the rules, but the rules aren't right. I think that's the whole point of the whole series, but I digress. And I mean, Jamie knows that for sure, right? Obviously, because that's what he's going off about right now. And that's true. Chelstead did it. He burnt for it, but he had the gumption to stand up and do what was right, which makes me think of Sam again. I know we talked mm. a little bit about Sam last episode, and I don't know why he's coming up in Jamie's plot so much, but with his cravenness, he reacted and stabbed another in his cowardice, right? Uh, it may have been out yeah. of shock, but he also has the gall to stand up to John in the books. Yeah, he's he's like Neville Longbottom. He is the Neville Longbottom, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm hoping for a glow up in book six for him, you know? He doesn't know that he's glow- glowing up, but he is. Yeah, but puberty's going to treat I, him good. I mean, like, like you said, Sam comes up. There are those ties, and I think part of it is, like, George was trying to do something with this book, and that's why both Sam and Jamie suddenly get POVs, right? He's like, this works, I guess. But, yeah, Chelsea said burn for it, but he stuck by what he believed. Yeah. Which is, let's not burn the city. <laughs> but you know who couldn't, because they were all sent away? The Kingsguard, except for Jamie. Tywin's son, Ares' pet lion... Ares distrusted him, but he's like, I don't know, I kind of need this, right? I can just use this as a hostage, maybe. He can't do anything. And he's like, Varys, keep an eye on this one. Because you know what the fuck is Varys going to do whenever he wished? And Jamie heard everything. Yeah, he remembers the lust in the pyromancer's eyes when Ares had rolled out his plan for the placement of wildfire. And he remembers word reaching court of Rhaegar's fall in the trident, and how Ares immediately packed up Rayella and Viserys off to Dragonstone, but forbade Elia, thinking that Lewin had somehow betrayed Rhaegar, and keeping Elia and Aegon and Rhaenys underfoot could help keep Dorne loyal in his eyes. The traitors want my city, I heard him tell Rosart, but I'll give them naught but ashes. Let Robert be king over charred bones and cooked meat. Mm. We're hungry. <laughs> Day six of quarantine. <laughs> Ribs. <laughs> We're recording this around dinner time. Um, so, yeah, again, I can't think of, help but think of Rosart crayons. I just want to say Rosart put out a wildfire green color. Um, Rosart sponsor us. Um, also, there was a line, I don't know where it was, that was like, but the queen's eyes had been closed for a long time, and it seemed like it was insinuating that the queen usually has her own, something like a master of whispers. Mm-hmm. That's it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we're talking about Rayella for like a split second. Who? We can talk about Ares. Whomst? Rayella? Rosart? She, was she Crayola? a character? What'd she do? Oh. Birth some people? Die? That's so sad. Let's move on. I'm just kidding. Um, Sorry. I just, sometimes you gotta have a resentful sometimes you gotta moment. be bitter about like, you know, Rayella. I'm not she I'm not bitter. That. Ares thought the wildfire would transform him, maybe rebirth him as a dragon, but he was wrong. Ned Stark led Robert's vanguard south, but the Lannisters got to King's Landing first. Pycelle convinced Ares that Tywin was there to support him and opened the gates against Varys' warning. 
The trident in Rhaegar's fall had convinced Tywin to join the winning side. Jaime sent one of his men to ask leave and make terms with his father, but Aerys was like, mm, how about you bring me Tywin's head if you're no traitor? The messenger tells Jaime that Rosart was with Aerys, and Jaime's like, oh, I know what that means. It's barbecue time. Jaime slays Rosart first. He slays Ares before Ares can find someone else to get his message, and then he hunts the rest of the men down days later. He thinks Belise offered gold. Garrigus wept for mercy. Mercy, interesting. Mm-hmm. I've never really noticed this line before, but like, dude, no one fucking cared or knew that Jamie was just like, I'm going, I'm going out. I'm gonna just go kill these guys, right? He's just going full on vigilante right here. I mean, he already did in a way, but no one thought to check up on what happened to those dudes. And Jamie's like, "Yolo." Well, you get the parallel of like Tyrion cooking Simon Silvertongue, right, in a uh, the bowl of brown. But this actually reminds me of Arya. Usually, whenever I read it, it brings Arya's kill list mm. to my mind, which is great since we bring up Arya in this chapter in a little bit, and it also reminds me of Stoneheart's vengeance in a way. Uh, and maybe this is just that talk of mercy being thrown around with Garrigus weeping for mercy, but it really just brings them to mind here. I mean, it kind of, it, it makes sense because Jamie thinks, oh, the sword is more merciful than fire or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's very similar to what Arya learns about mercy. Yeah. When Jamie opened his eyes, he found himself staring at the stump of his sword hand, the hand that made me Kingslayer. The goat had robbed him of his glory and his shame, both at once. Leaving what? Who am I now? Oops. Okay, so this is like a reread podcast, so everyone, we all know that Jamie gets a golden hand at some point. He talks in this moment, you know, that that line, though, about, like, his hand being both his glory and shame. That line in the language there really reminds me of another song from this book. Speaking, Speaking of Simon Silvertongue. For she was his secret treasure, she was his shame and his bliss. For hands of gold are always cold. (laughs) Is that how the tune goes? I think it's like softer. Hold on, let me get Ed Sheeran on it. For hands of gold were always cold. I need an acoustic guitar. Does anyone have their acoustic? Mm, I can go get my... Nope, you are sure not gonna. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's totally okay. like a nod to that, though. Glory and shame to that. Which is why, of course, there are many of us still sitting in that Valencar camp and not settling for the, the truth that we had this summer. You know? Still waiting. Waiting for that book. I still think it'd be funny if it were Tyrion. It'd be fucking hysterical. Because then we would just be like, it ain't that deep, guys. This whole podcast well, I'd just is canceled. Be like, for me, I'd think it was funny because I'd be like, dude, Cersei was right. And that... Has never happened. Fun to me. Well, it's happened once ish, but every now and then, Cersei's right, and it's always fascinating. So I, I would be excited if she were right for a split second and be like, "Damn, congrats, you did it." Brienne clutches her towel speechlessly in response to his story and asks why no one knows this if it's the truth. And Jamie tells her that the Kingsguard are sworn to keep the king's secrets. Also, none of them were there, and most of them died anyway. But she's asking him to break his oaths by asking this, and he laughs at her and is like, do you think Honorable Ned would listen to me? And he jumps to his feet. By what right does the wolf judge the lion? By what right? He smashes his stump trying to climb out, and the room spins. Brienne catches him and yells for the guards. The Kingslayer! Jamie, he thought. My name is Jamie. 
You gotta know your name. You gotta know your name. That's not my name. That's not my name. That's not my name. That's not my. We should we should do that at some they point. Call for like Aria. They call me Rhea. They call me Theon. But Theon's my name. Okay, you're, right, you're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think this is one of those iconic lines in this book, right? The by what right does the wolf judge the lion? By what right? Partially because it comes in this very iconic scene. Whatevs. It reminds me again of like Tywin and his line later on, or at some point, of like a lion doesn't concern itself with the opinion of sheep, which is kind of a riff on Virgil and you know lions and wolves, right? They're kind of very equal because Virgil's line is it never troubles the wolf how many the sheep may be, and I found when I was like googling this line for some reason this great Quora answer from David Schrauger, English literature met. Like English literature major at what was it Seattle University or something, and he has this great great analysis. But I love the ending of it of like punctuating it of by what measure does a wolf judge a lion? And David says by the same measure by which they judge themselves as harshly as they judge themselves. That stare across the throne room didn't offend Sir Jamie so much because it came from Lord Edward Stark. Rather, it is because it confirmed the judgment. Jamie had already made about himself. Oh, there's your projecting. Yeah. Very, very nice. Very deep. Thank you, David. That's actually really good. On Quora. There's some good stuff on Quora. I don't actually go there often. Um, I don't understand it. There's not that much good stuff, though. I don't really understand. Every once in a while, I'll read a good one, but then I get them to my promoted email box, and I'm like... What is happening oh. on Quora? You know, like maybe they should quarantine it. Whoa, social distance with Quora. <laughs> um, but yeah, like in his analysis, David talks a lot about, you know, how the two are the same in terms of what honor costs them. Like, honor costed Jamie, I guess, his hand and Ned his life. But I think the way I see it is it's less what honor costs them, but it's more of what being dishonorable got them and how being dishonorable was actually in some ways the right thing because yes the wolf and lion are very much equal that's why jamie's like why are you fucking judging me like the wolf's not they as we've talked about like the north is full of nobility that also not so noble at times right um just as jamie's wondering like okay why why is this guy judging me when, like, no one's judging Robert for holding a whole rebellion? Dude, you fucking rose up against the throne. Like, what were you planning on doing here in the throne room? Uh, and Jamie's just, like, being judged for finishing the job. And he's like, why is that honor more important than the actual actions that led to this or of why it was important? And I think it ties very well, like... Ned's story and John's story, but especially Ned's story together with Jamie's because, like, Ned... He hasn't had to make this decision yet by this point when he finds Jamie, but he does like a few months later when he gets to the Tower of Joy and he chooses to do, same as Jamie, this dishonorable thing, right? He fights the Kingsguard and he brings dishonor upon himself by quote unquote fathering a bastard and living with that and all these other things. And yeah. I mean, that's what Jamie has to do too. He has to go on pretending they're not his kids. That's true. And that's, is that the dishonorable thing to do or the honorable thing to do? Actually unsure. I mean, what's honor compared to? A horse. Oh my god. (laughs) (sighs) Um, Also, one last thought, and I'm just going to leave this here. 
briefly. Jamie, as he's doing all of this confessing, right? And as we start to see, like, who he really is and his motivations behind murdering Ares and how Ares was terrible. It's kind of like a a sort of baptism, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was thinking this is kind of like a rebirth for Jamie. And, like, obviously he isn't born the next day as, like, Aemon the Dragon Knight come again or anything, right? He's not in that mm-hmm. kind of situation. But it is a rebirth. It, it, this completely changes his frame of thinking. And we are going to see that quite obviously in the next couple chapters, which are some of the some really good work in A Storm of Swords. I was going to say some of the best chapters, but there's some really killer, no pun intended, chapters coming yeah. up here. There's a lot of really good chapters in Storm, just in general. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, all of it. When Jamie comes to, Brienne is standing naked amidst Kyburn and the guards, and Kyburn is asking what he's been fed. He says, worms and piss and gray vomit. The guards are like, hard bread and water and oat porridge, you are so dramatic. Um, he's like spoiled as rich boy. <laughs> we've talked a lot about that symbolism of Brienne as a mother, but... If this is Jamie's rebirthing, Brienne just gave birth to him. I think I've already said that during this. So Brienne birthed Jamie Lannister again. Um, so just chew on that for a minute. There's an chewing. <laughs> there's an interesting. There's an interesting distinguishment made here. Uh, Maester Kyburn. Jamie thinks that he's a maester with. Like, he thinks Maester Kyburn, and he thinks no, he's a maester without a chain. Which is interesting coming from Jamie, who is a sword without a sword hand now, Mm. right? And the fever seems to be blurring those lines to him because this chapter is very much so like Ned's fever chapters when he had the leg injury, Mm. but now Jamie has the hand injury. And the fever is blurring those lines and Kyburn's strong command of the men here, how he asserts himself among these men and among these servants, plays out later because he comes to service at King's Landing with that reference on his resume. Yes, he has a he has a reference, um, but I think that's a really really great connection again between Jamie and Ned. We could have put Jamie's chapters after Ned's chapters. I know we fucked up. He, no, I don't know. He fits in so well in so many places, <laughs> like Brienne's vagine. Yeah, and apparently, I guess his sister's thighs, but not anymore. Who knows? So speaking of like Brienne taking on that sort of motherly role, like, she jumps up in this moment to care for Jamie, and it reminds me of another mother, uh, uh, Catelyn, when, at the beginning of the story, right, she doesn't mind being nude in front of Lewin, because all of a sudden something very urgent is happening, and I I thought that was worth comparing, because Brienne, as we see in her interactions with Catelyn, very much admires what she sees as, like, sort of Cat's woman's bravery or something, or woman's courage. That is a really great call, and there's something about that whole... Like, leaving your body behind with your physical response, showing the true strength for these two, something disassociative in that way. Like, how Catelyn acts in the face of the assassin, and she immediately goes to defend Bran uh, Mm. without even thinking, you know, of what it's going to cost her. And Brienne later, with no chance, no choice. Uh, There's really something strong in that woman's bravery there. And in that moment, they're just like, whatever, my body's not going to hold me back. It's not something to be ashamed of. But Kyburn is like, hang on, Jamie's still dirty, let's scrub him, and then you can bring him to King's Pyre, the largest tower in Harrenhal that Roos claims as his own. Roos is a size queen. (laughs) He is, and it's not too famous of a tower for the most part, but there are a couple things historically that happened here. And you know who landed on that very tower with their very dragon? Hoobst. Damon Targaryen in the dance. 
Actually, I didn't know that. Yeah, this is uh, right before the Battle Over the God's Eye, pretty much. He landed at that tower that fateful night. And just a fun fact, since I, uh, Satan, as the internet knows me of, I've compared Jamie to Damon before over on Twitter. And I'll chat with you guys on it now, because why not? Some of these qualities really come out when we think about that whole discarded 1993 role in the outline, uh, which George, you know, passed Jamie's role to Cersei, it kind of seems, where he kills everyone in front of him to sit the throne. Not too far off base with Damon, to be fair. Uh, they're both princes of the city who were more than a little chuffed at being set aside, right? Uh, Damon is set aside in honor of his niece as as the heir, who uh, he then kind of tried to get in her pants and give her some presents, and, you know, later married her within six months of his wife Lena dying and her husband Lena Valerian dying. Anyways, carry on. But with or without that outline, both are prestigious fighters. Damon is regarded as one of the best warriors of his time and Jamie the best swordsman of his own. Both were originally promised or married to someone they didn't really want to marry, right? Rhea Royce for Damon. Uh, Jamie almost married Liza, but the circumstances are a little different. They found themselves in incestuous relationships later in life, right? With three bastards that have claims to the throne hanging on. Interesting. Both have some missteps when it comes to the enemy's children. You think of Bran versus Blood and Cheese uh, with Helena's children, and they both run parts of the city. Jamie the Kingsguard, Damon the Gold Cloaks, though Jamie's gold is also kind of what runs the city, right? Although they're both reviled for horrible acts, the redeeming parts of their character have seemed to come not just from them, but from characters who bring it out of them. Nettles and Brienne of Tarth are, not to make too much of a generalization, but totally the most beloved parts of these characters, right? Uh, they're characters that want to do good and they motivate these guys to be better, glossing over all the stuff with Nettles, like how he took her as a bedmaid and she was 17, and maybe his bastard daughter, we can just gloss over it. Uh, we get it, you're wearing a sexy motorcycle leather jacket, Damon. Um, while their hearts kind of say something different, after Jamie's season 8 ending, they both didn't stay with the woman who gave them the change of heart. Rhaenyra wanted Nettles dead, Jamie regressed, I'm sure Cersei may not want Brienne alive either. Uh, they return to their hateful love. They face their death. Maybe it's a stretch. I'm curious to see if there's a similar ending for Jamie as Damon in that, like, he does get better, but the good act doesn't wash out the bad, like we know, and that change isn't easy and it's not always possible. So I, I think it's interesting that Damon dies at age 49 doing his duty to the queen he chose, even though he grew hateful uh, while her birthright was stolen and trampled. Yeah, I think... As you said with the 93 letter, it seems like there's a lot of ideas that maybe George had that he was like, all right, I can finally do this here in the dance where I put in all those ideas. Like we had talked about before in our episodes on the dance of the Dragon Civil War uh, on Patreon, like how there's a lot of, I mean, Rhaenyra seems like a lot of other characters, right? She has similarities to a lot of them, as does Allison. Both of them are very similar to Cersei in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm including Rhaenyra. Yeah. So I think having Damon as that counterpart there is, I think you're definitely onto something. I don't know. It, it almost seems like though, because Damon is sort of a repository for like proto Jamie. Yeah. I don't know that Jamie goes exactly the way it does in season eight. I think something happens. It's mm-hmm. not going to be good, especially with the Valencar prophecy. If that is him fulfilling it, I don't think that'll be seen necessarily as heroic. And yeah, and I don't think it. Sh- I think that's something that should be complicated because right now, you know, people are somewhat rooting for it because Cersei is unambiguously still a villain 
in feast uh and dance so well and i think that that if the valencar goes down like you and i have discussed here um i think the important part is that like it shouldn't make you feel happy or good. Like, you shouldn't be like, yes, choke that bitch out. It needs to be something grotesque, something that makes you think. Because um, same thing with, like, John and Danny. If that's something that's real, then it needs to make you think and it needs you to feel uncomfortable because that's the point of this book isn't for you to be happy that Brienne and Jamie have six children and get married and they live in a farmhouse. Um, that's not the story that we're reading, right? Like, it needs to be something that yeah. flips the switch. So I don't know if it'll be wildfire or what makes him go back to Cersei, but I uh, I have a whole vision of how it plays out. Yeah, and I mean, like, spoilers, longer games, even if they had that, like, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a happy ending either, right? Yeah. And I actually did really respect that. I liked that ending. Yeah, I think games. the- uh, I thought that was a respectable ending. The PTSD that they suffer and like how it affects them is really interesting. And I think that is a good comparison to make in this situation when we're looking at fiction that- Not youth fiction. I mean, that's really young adult fiction, you know, nothing like that in a way. This is this gets to be just as mature, though, as some of the later books really dive into. Um, Dude, The Hungry Games was serious. Very psychologically fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I respect it. But Kyburn respects it, but also doesn't. You know, he's all like, I want this all done quickly. <laughs> Says that Lord Bolton insists on dinner with Jamie, and you know what? Time is running out. Yeah, Brienne volunteers to scrub him down, and the guards are like, all right, off they fuck. Uh, Brienne gets her towel and a brush to scrub him with and trims his beard up. And this is like super intimate fifth date material, all of this, which it is the fifth chapter. So technically, it is the fifth date. But you guys haven't even really fucked yet. I mean, but they kind of have, as we established in Jamie 3. Wrong sword. But it's still, I mean, like, who are we to tell them that that was not sex? (laughs) But anyway, um, I would say that trimming someone's beard is not fifth date material. That feels like way, like, I don't know, like, you're living in together already. I mean, they are. They're bathing together. That's true. You're right. They've been living together, basically. (laughs) You're right. Fairy Kyburn Mother <laughs> returns with some magical clothing. It's a loose green tunic and clean black breeches. Congratulations, and the leather jerkin. Both Brienne and Jamie's outfit changes here. Get ready. They remind me of Ned showing up to King's yes. Landing, like we keep mentioning, and having to change into clothes that aren't actually his and John as well. Um, if you don't remember, that's in Game of Thrones, Eddard Four. So Ned had come striding into the council chambers, bone-tired and dressed in borrowed clothing, to find four members of the small council waiting for him. Very apt, they're about to have to go into a whole new scenario in clothes that those aren't their clothes, and we'll talk about them in just a bit. Brienne, who he thinks of as the wench, helps him dress, and she gets her own outfit, the only female clothing in Harrenhal, apparently, a stained pink satin gown with a linen under-tunic. The gown does not fit, Brienne's too tall, too broad, and bruised for the dress. Jamie looks at her for the first time, thinking, pink is not a good color on you. You look ridiculous, and you are far more muscular than I am. And the first thing I thought was, you threatened, bro? Oh, yes, but also Turn hard. On. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, but I mean, like, also in this moment, you know, Jamie's just telling us that Brienne's undertones don't work with pink. You know, <laughs> I have... After after this, I thought way too hard about this and should not have. But I was like, maybe Brienne's undertones are like yellow or like kind of gold because uh, it, it maybe 
no one's remarked upon how she looks in like all of her Tarth gear, and so I imagine that her undertones go well with the blue mm. of Tarth. Yeah, I imagine the rich gem tones work really well with her. I imagine she's a little more maybe yellow-pink. I don't know. He thinks about making fun of her, but he also knows she's stronger than him now since he lost his hand, so maybe he should cool it. Kyburn gives him a flask of some vinegar-honeyed licorice with cloves. I don't know if this is, like, super sweet Jaeger or what, but sounds disgusting. And he's like, uh, I don't know, like, what if I just don't do it? And they're like, fucking pound it, nerd. Like, just down (laughs) this, down the flask, please. Jamie, not good at taking shots. But, you know, maybe it works, because he feels stronger in about half an hour (laughs) in the air is a smack in the face compared to the steam he had been in. So he's like clutching Brienne's arm to get through the yard to the drafty huge hall. There are huge hearths lining the wall, more than he can count, he thinks, but none of the fires are lit. And this is like Hall in a nutshell, first off. But also, damn, Bruce, you are having guests over. Turn the front porch light on. Holy shit. I mean, this is just how he is. I get it, but holy shit. Yeah, Bruce is like, hmm, but darkness, though. Spearmen in fur cloaks guard the doors and steps up into the galleries, and Roos is sitting dramatically amidst a slate floor, only a cupbearer serving him. This whole exchange is set up with just immaculate care. The first time you read this passage, you leave it not understanding that the game has changed, but George does this so delicately. The reader doesn't understand the exchange that occurs until it's too late and you see Rob dying. Like, the first yeah. time you read it, you don't. So rereading it and getting to analyze it is so great because it's just this careful volley of words that Ruth starts with Brienne and Jamie. He tells Jamie he's pleased that Jamie's strong enough to attend him. And he just looks at Brienne and he's like, sit down. <laughs> he's like, oh, hello. Uh, There's a spread of meat and cheeses laid out for them. Damn. Uh, He offers them both. He's like, I'm sorry. I only have corner store white or red wine from Lady (laughs) Went Cellars. I don't know anything about it. Uh, And Sir Amory Lord drank a lot of it already. He's like three buck chuck or uh, Boone's Farm. Pretty much. That's actually what's happening here. And Jamie says he trusts that Bolton killed Amory for this, though. Nude. drinking all the wine and slides quickly into his seat saying that you know what i'll just drink some red like a good lannister he's like white is for starks which well not wrong huh brienne though chooses water and Roos is like oh, i'll have my usual hypocris like the fucking hipster that he is and his serving boy elmer frey goes off to get some drinks big morning big red flag uh, Roos dismisses the guards as well, and there's a lot of obvious color symbolism at play here, right? There's the purity of white and the blood red of Jamie's wine. But of course, one of the strongest parts of this to me is that Roos doesn't choose white or red wine. He's like, I won't drink Three Buck Chuck. I won't drink Franzia. The Roos is loose. I'm drinking Hippocras. And to me, that says that Roos is choosing his own game. He's playing his own game. He gave Jamie, here's your red or white option, but... I'm not playing that game. And, you know, he could have offered them Hippocras, right? He's like, he withheld it. Because I I, I looked it up, I guess Hippocras is like a sort of yes. sweetened or spiced wine. Mm-hmm. And like, damn, what, okay, in some ways Roos is a good host. In a lot of other ways, like, actually Roos is a fucking terrible host. How do you not offer that? I mean, that's his whole, um, that's his whole thing, though. No one drinks it, just him. It's true. 
That's true. Maybe no one else likes it and they're all like, ew, you weirdo. Uh, Jamie choosing the red wine here, though, speaking of symbolism, I kind of wonder if it's part of that larger, like, you know, lies in Arbor Girl gold. Hmm? Who? Huh? Oops. Who? Oops. Um, you know, the lies in Arbor Gold theory that every time Arbor Gold comes up in the story, there's a character lying. I think one of the, the most obvious examples of this, right, is that scene with Littlefinger. But is Jamie choosing red wine here because he and Roos are like actually kind of telling the truth here? Not that Jamie necessarily makes that choice because he's telling the truth, but because like George is the writer and this is one of those Easter eggs or whatever. I think it does work to an extent. Um, I think the specific Lies in Arbor Gold theory does have to mention that it's Arbor Gold as the official mm. Lies in Arbor Gold mascot. I have the uh, I, see. I have the authority to tell you, but I do think there's something here and. I had this later, I'm just going to say it now. I do think there's something here, especially with the the wine and the fruit, uh, offering the prunes, offering the plums. Roos is offering these fruits to him, and it's a temptation, right? Like, if you imbibe, and he talks in a bit about that whole idea that in the North we honor, you know, guest right, but... Uh, it, it, that's the game. That's the joke. He's offering these things and he's saying, do you want to imbibe? Do you want to taste the forbidden fruit? I'm offering you, Jamie Lannister. Pay to play. Put your cards on the table. Let's go. Yeah. And I think, what, isn't Jamie like, no, I would not like the prunes, but yeah, some kinds of prunes, depending, you know, <laughs> are in fact tasty. And I just want to throw that out there. I totally agree. And they're very good for your bowels. As we get to note in this chapter, Jamie goes mm-hmm. to reach for his mm-hmm. wine with his right hand, which is no longer there, and he spills it everywhere, and Roos is polite enough to not to notice, pretending not to notice. Occasionally he's polite. Occasionally. He instead invites Jamie to try the prunes Lord Vargo brought, and then uh, tells them that he worries about their bowels, basically, with these prunes. <laughs> Jamie is like, all right, let's cut the shit, Bolton. And he's like, what oh. are your intentions here? And Roos is like... You're a perilous prize, Jamie. You sow dissension whenever you arrive anywhere as a prisoner. Admir Tully has offered a thousand gold dragons for you, and Jamie's like Cersei would pay ten times more. And Roos is like, he smiles for a second. The smile fades, and he's like, will she? Interesting. And he goes on. <laughs> he's like, 10k in golden dragons is a pretty hefty amount, but uh, Lord Karstark will give his daughter to the man who brings Jamie's head to him. So, don't know. Some interesting bluffing going here, right? Jamie goes, Leave it to your goat to get it backwards, said Jamie. Bolton gave a soft chuckle. Harry and Karstark was captive here when we took the castle, did you know? I gave him all the Carhold men still with me and sent him off with Glover. I do hope nothing ill befell him at Duskendale, else Alice Karstark would be all that remains of Lord Karstark's progeny. He chose another prune. I love this, especially because we just had the word from Catalan's chapters uh, that a third of the force is gone, destroyed in Duskendale. The North is not sitting pretty. So this is all part of the game for him, right? He's sitting quietly amidst destruction. Roose Bolton drinks and he smiles. And this man has everything and nothing to gain or lose in either direction. I love that Jamie says Cersei would pay 10 times that here. But when it's said out loud, that's a pretty big amount of money that he's just throwing around. Like, the Lannisters are rich. The Hightowers rival their wealth. 
for example, and we'll learn in the next chapter that 300 gold dragons is a really good ransom for a knight of a pretty popular house like Jamie. So to offer 10,000 dragons, little drastic, pretty big check, Jamie. And also, are you sure that Cersei will cash that check for you? Hmm. For a comparison, Robert gifted 10,000 golden dragons to the winner of the archery contest in the tournament, which we know who that was. Uh, so I guess it's chump change to the Lannisters, but in Tyrion 4, A Storm of Swords, we learn it's about one gold dragon for a large side of beef in the capital, or for six hmm. skinny uh, piglets or animals. So I'd imagine that's like 5 to $10 in US dollars, right? Like 100 meals for an average Westerosi family is what Jamie is just like often offering. Like, oh yeah, $10,000. Whatever. Yeah. No big deal. I did the research so you guys don't have to. Thank you. And, I mean, as you said, would Cersei pay it? Mm. I mean, you know, Cersei's not great at the whole Lannister always pays his debts thing. Right. She's not great about that. Um, Roose tells Jamie, you know what? I just threw that out there. I actually don't need a wife. I'm married. Please congratulate me. I'm married to Fat Walder Frey. He orders Elmar, one of the quote-unquote treasures of that alliance, to tear off more bread for Jamie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Brienne is, like, just sitting there tearing her own bread at the dance. She's not allowed to be in on the fun reindeer games. Well, not yet. Mm. I think that's something really prominent here. Brienne's very much made to be outside of this game. She's not allowed to play or participate. She's put in the position a lot of younger women in the story are, like Sansa and Marcella. They're not allowed to play the game that they're a piece of, and Brienne being shoved into this silly satin pink dress is an obvious show of that. She's being presented uncomfortably like a Barbie doll or something. Uh, the dress is tight. It's constricting her from being herself. And by putting her in this dress, they're putting her in that typical Westerosi female role, the docile, submissive woman. She's being told, you are to be treated this way like a doll, and that's made very clear by the chapter's ending that she has no rights. Yeah, absolutely. They're trying to, like, remove power from her. Yeah. Reinforce those roles. Uh, Roose Bolton confirms rumors. Jamie has heard. He needs to give Lord Vargo Hote Harrenhal, as he must leave soon to go see Edmure wed to Rosenfrey at the twins' with his king, and Jamie's like, wait, what? Edner's wedding Roslyn? And Bolton spits out his prune, being like, oh yes, Jamie, I have even more gossip for you. <laughs> uh, you know Jane Westerling, right? And Jamie's like, not really. And he's like, well, she's your fa father's bannerman's daughter, and Rob married her. <laughs> And Jamie's like, I don't really recall her, but I guess her house is prideful. They're not very powerful. Brienne tries to defend Rob. King Rob was sworn to wed a fray. He would never break faith. He- His grace is a boy of 16, said Roose Bolton mildly. And I would thank you not to question my word, my lady. Jamie felt almost sorry for Rob Stark. He won the war on the battlefield and lost it in a bedchamber. Poor fool. He said, feeling sorry for himself. <laughs> uh, uh, I love this. I love the way Roose Bolton says it mildly. Like, that is the most A Roose Bolton should ever be. Uh, it's the perfect power play because Roose isn't shitting on the king that he is sworn to here. He is saying, it's merely a, he's a boy of 16. They change their mind all the time, you know? He plays it really cool, but there's so many context clues and hints here. 
that we just, no one has picked up on yet. And Jamie is so out of practice politically, obviously, that he like doesn't even, it's going past him right now for a few more minutes. Um, I love that Rob gets brought into this. I love that Jamie projects a little bit there, feeling sorry for Rob, because this is a great point. Jamie was just a boy of 16 in this entire story we had recanted to us. He broke his yes. oath. He was but a boy. And it, it's the same thing as Rob, right? Like, Jamie is knighted and Kingsguard at age 15, right? He gets up on there on his dais, goes to the tourney. He's like, I'm great. And they get sent back, sent back away from Harrenhal. And when he comes back, there's another boy that has just turned 16. Literally, Rob just turned 16 right before he died. In Catalan 2-3, he just has turned 16. Uh, and he stands on the dais in Catalan 2, and she looks at him, and she thinks, he's a boy no longer. He is 16 now, a man grown. Just look at him. War had melted all the softness from his face and left him hard and lean. He'd shaved his beard away, but his auburn hair fell uncut to his shoulders. The recent rains had rusted his mail and left brown stains on the white of his cloak and surcoat. Or perhaps the stains were blood. On his head was the sword crown they had fashioned him of bronze and iron. He bears it more comfortably now. He bears it like a king. Uh, I thought that was great, especially considering John's comments about what a king should look like when it comes to Jamie and a Game of Thrones. Hmm. And there's also this line from The Fall of the Dragons, the year of the false spring in the world of ice and fire about the tourney of Harrenhal and Jamie's uh, being sworn in from the Kingsguard. The young knight said his vows before the royal pavilion, kneeling on the green grass in his white armor as half the lords of the realm looked on, when Sir Gerald Hightower raised him up and clasped his white cloak around his shoulders. A roar went up from the crowd, for Sir Jamie was much admired for his courage, gallantry, and prowess with a sword, especially in the Westerlands. These were two boys with the whole world on their shoulders, but the one mistake that the entire world saw as a mistake... Uh, has come to pass the judgment on them. Yeah, and I think those are all really, really good threads that you're drawing between the two. I mean, there's just 16, and I think a big part of the story is like, you know, this is what happens when you put responsibility and try and thrust adulthood onto children. Uh, yeah. We talked about it a lot in the Sansa's chapters, but the whole part of Rob just being 16 and making this mistake, Jamie being just 16, making mistake but also the right choice. You know, he he thought that it was going to be fine, that he was going to be the hero. It also makes me think of another teenager who will be king, who's going to look like a king, <laughs> who's going to probably make another mistake, not quite in the bedchamber, but also in the bedchamber, you know, both. People may or may not see it as a mistake, but wedding Ariane Martell. Oh, yeah. I do think that Aegon the Sixth, yes, will wed Ariane Martell. So, well, and something that comes from that is like, in my opinion, Ariane's going to pull the trigger right before uh, before the trigger should be pulled. Obviously, that has to happen. Uh, it'll probably be a little bit of Quentin that influences her, and it'll also be because mm -hmm. again, pay to play. That's power. You know, you want a voice at the council. Well, pay to play. Um, I'm interested to see how that goes. And this also makes me think, while you were saying a boy king, at first I didn't realize you were talking about Aegon because it was making me think of another boy king, uh, hmm. Sir Jamie in his current state, Jamie the Broken. Oh. Anyways, so the word game starts being hmm. played again between these people. Jamie's like, how does Lord Walder like fish instead of wolf? 
Bolton says that trout makes for a tasty supper, but poor Elmar... It does. It does. Poor Elmar was supposed to wed Arya Stark, and Walder broke the betrothal when betrayed. Brienne leans forward, interrupting immediately, and asks about Arya's welfare. She asks if Roos has specific knowledge of Arya being alive, and he kind of shrugs, and he's like, she was lost, now she's found. She's being returned to the north. We know that isn't really Arya. Brienne interrupts that her sister has to go as well with her, and that Tyrion has promised us, Reed, the North, which is the same North she kept saying, I'm not siding with them, but now it turns out she is, uh, their safe passage in exchange for Jamie. Roose is like, I can't believe I have to tell you this right now, honey, but the Lannisters are literally all liars. <laughs> yeah, It's the best much. line in the whole fucking chapter. He's like, oh my god. He like puts his hand out, I am so sorry to have to tell you this, but the Lannisters, honey, <laughs> oh, they're liars. They're liars. <laughs> oh, but Roos loves being the one to tell. He's a messy bitch who loves drama. He actually is. Like, Roos Bolden would not make all the choices that he does make. He makes a lot of messy, dramatic <laughs> choices. He would not do that if he was not no. that. So, anyways, Jamie asks, like, wait, excuse me? This is a slight in my honor and threatens him with a cheese knife, hoping that he looks strong <laughs> and Roos Bolton smells again, like, oh, honey. Once more. Reminds him that, oh, my guards are all around you. And Jamie's like, I can take him. And he's like, no, you you can't. All right. Jamie's like, you know what? You'll be as dead as Ares by the time <laughs> they reach me. And Lord Bolton's like, excuse me. And just, just responds. He responds very full politely with like, threatening your dinner host is not chivalrous. Also, the North has these hospitality laws that we hold very sacred. He said... Allegedly. <laughs> Jamie reminds him of his captivity and the goat taking his hand off. And Roos is like, you would make a great wedding gift to Edmir, or perhaps a head in place of Eddard's head. And he goes on, and obviously Lannister enmity is meaning little to Bolton, but Jamie's like, Lannister friendship could mean a lot, and realizes the game they're now playing. And he can't look. He refuses to move to see if Brienne is understanding. Roos tells Elmar to carve the roast after saying he doesn't know if he wants to be friends with the Lannisters. Brienne gets the first serving, but she does not move to eat. She firmly interrupts again, repeating Jamie is supposed to be exchanged for the Stark sisters, but Roos says Brienne is guilty of freeing Jamie in the Riverlands and guilty of treason. She argues that she serves Lady Catelyn, but Roos says he serves the King in the North, a higher authority, or the King who lost the North he says, and the king who lost the north does not wish to trade Jamie for his sisters. His worthless sisters. Goddamn. <laughs> Jamie tells Brienne, okay, chill the fuck out and eat. Alright, Roose Bolton's not gonna kill us. And then in this moment he realizes that he can't cut his meat, he feels worthless, and, and he actually thinks that he's worth less than a girl now, and that the condition Circe gives the Stark girls, and the condition that Circe returns the Stark girls in may or may not be good like murdery or cut up or dead in fact they're actually sending them into some bad situations but we'll get to that someday right uh <laughs> jamie someday. thinks that he's gonna get the blame for the stark girl's condition too probably and Roos is cutting his own meat the blood running down his plate great bolton imagery our sharps are our knives are sharp our sharps are well, that's right yeah Sharp sort knife. <laughs> he asks if Brienne will sit the fuck down if Bolton tells her they can go along their way like Lady Stark desired, and she sits down, saying, okay, yeah, that's cool. But there is one issue. 
uh, Jamie's hand is that issue. He tells Jamie why Vargo really cut it off. Vargo abandoned the Lannisters because Roos offered him Harrenhal, a reward greater than anything Tywin could give him. But he's a stranger to Westeros, and he didn't know that the prize was poisoned. Uh, I love this use of the term prize being poisoned because it reminds me of Euron, his gifts to Victarion, right? Those prizes that are so poisoned from Euron. And also the language used in Feast in Jamie 5 when he visits Jenna, they start talking about River Run. And she says that River Run is a poisoned prize because of all of the airs and the battling going on for it. Hmm. Interesting. Jamie jokes that he means the curse of Harrenhal, but Roose Bolton is like, no, I mean the curse of Tywin. He says Vargo should have consulted the Tarbexer reigns before cutting off Jamie's hand, and Jamie's like, I don't get it, there are none, and Roose is like, yes, sweetie, I'm trying to be dramatic while I monologue, please keep up. Oh, Roose is just so frustrated, he's like, no one here gets my jokes. <laughs> I get him, Roose. Yeah, we get we see you. I understand you. <laughs> I guess we do. We're like, yeah, you guys, I don't understand. Reese likes prunes. Prunes are great. <laughs> Us. Um So earlier, you know, we were talking about how like Brienne Marin may not realize the game being played, but now I'm not sure if it's like she doesn't realize or it we are we, this this information is withheld from us, like how well Brienne understands some of the politics because we don't look at her. But in general, we are seeing a lot of the underpinnings of the Red Wedding mm-hmm. happening here. And Roos actually exhibits not only a great mind for gossip, but a very good mind for politics, connections, and the importance context has in terms of those politics, which is probably why he's so good at gossip now that I think about it. Anyways, <laughs> a lot of it isn't said explicitly, because a lot of it is happening through these subtleties, and a lot of politics, turns out, is rooted in those connotations, because... Vargo Hote and the Brave Companions are examples of that because what he's showing here is that Vargo Hote knows the what of what should bequeath power in terms of Heron Hall. Like, obviously, this seems like a great prize, right? But because Vargo Hote doesn't actually understand the whys or the how of Westeros and the history, etc., it ends up being a completely worthless castle for him. Also, now he's just incurred the wrath of Tywin Lannister, which was honestly pretty unnecessary on his part. And I think the best part about this is that all of this information of how Vargo fucked up, Bruce is delivering it to Jamie and saying, so this is how Vargo fucked up. And it's also like an invitation because Bruce is demonstrating, but do you know who does know the whys and hows of holding Hall of what it means? Hey, do you know who does understand how this game is? I do. I, Bruce Bolton, do. So play it with me. It's literally him going, I'll get the chessboard out. Uh, Everything. The prunes. This is all in that invitation. You know, that strike a deal with the devil thing is going on here. And Jamie just understood. Uh, You look around and you're like, oh, he's all alone. And there aren't really any any Stark bannermen standing around. Bruce doesn't have this place in name of Stark. He has it in name of Roos. Yeah, the Roos is loose. He's loose. Baby. Very loose. Absolutely. Um, and Roos is over here being like, I got loose lips. I'm going to sink some ships. Vargo Hote was hoping that Stannis would win the Blackwater, turns out. And he's like, yeah, then he could sell for Harrenhal. And turns out, you know, but on the wrong horse or the wrong goat. Stannis lost. Renly died. And so it turns out now Stark is the only way that he can be saved from Tywin. He really fucked up. <laughs> and that whole chance is starting to wear thin. 
And then Brienne gives her hashtag Stark support once more, saying, Well, Rob, though, has won every single battle. And Roose corrects her, No, he lost the phrase the car Stark's Winterfell in the North. And that's exactly where the penny drops. If Rob lost the phrase, the car Starks, Winterfell, and the North, why is Roos here and why is there a fray serving him? Yes, absolutely. It all starts to come together. And hmm. Roos says, Boys of 16 always think they are immortal and invincible. An older man would bend the knee, I think. After a war, there is always a peace, and with peace, there are pardons. For the Rob Starks, at least, not for the likes of Vargo Hote. Bolton gave him a small smile. Both sides have made use of him, but neither will shed a tear at his passing. The brave companions did not fight in the Battle of the Blackwater yet. They died there all the same. So something that I have noticed when reading this, and I did not notice this until this time, that last sentence that Bolton says... Both sides have made use of him, but neither will shed a tear at his passing. They did Mm. not fight in the Battle of Blackwater, but they died there all the same. That's not about the Brave Companions anymore. It's about Rob. Mm. That's what he's saying. Both sides have made use of Rob, but neither will shed a tear at his passing. Like, he might not be saying Rob, he's saying the Brave Companions, but overall, he's pretty much showing Jamie what he's saying. Absolutely. Maybe Rob is a brave companion. Not these brave companions, but literally a brave companion in a way. Maybe the brave companions are the friends we made along the way. That we're social distancing from. Far away from each other, yes. (laughs) Bruce lays all of the options out for Jamie. He could be delivered to Carhold, out of the lion's claws. Don Darien and his outlaws could get him. There are wolves. The mountain exists. Also, there are all these other Northmen, like the Karstarks. House Derry is hunting him. So everybody. That's why Vargo Hope brought him here, because he was so afraid that Roos would take his prize, he cut off Jamie's hand. So I really love this line from Roos of, By maiming you, he meant to remove your sword as a threat, gain himself a grisly token to send to your father, and diminish your value to me. For he's my man as I am king rob's man thus his crime is mine or may seem so in your father's eyes and therein lies my small difficulty he gazed at jamie his pale eyes and blinking expectant chill (laughs) very chill (sighs) even jamie is afraid of him again we talked about this last week but like even jamie's like this guy's fucking creepy Yeah, but I mean, like, how can you not be intimidated by him? He's got, like, the latest drinks, (laughs) the latest fashion, very fashion forward. He knows all the hot gas. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, He's a big foodie. Jamie, so so we were talking about it earlier. You know, he doesn't necessarily explicitly always think about being a man, but it's obviously part of how he views the world because he also is like, oh, I'm worth less than a girl now because I can't fucking cut my meat or whatever. And... I think you can see that here, in a way, like, throughout this chapter. You see that without his arm. You know, Jamie doesn't have power anymore. He was a little threatening before, even though he was a prisoner, <laughs> right? Coming from River Run. Yeah. But now he's just a hostage, and he's become very much a commodity. And that's what comes through in the language of, like, oh, and you're totally willing to pay this much for you. And they're like, well, Cersei will pay this much for him. You know, as though he were, like, some sort of bride to be sold. Mm-hmm. And 
these are dowries or something, and it comes through in Vargo hoping to diminish, as he says, Jamie's value to Roose Bolton. It's like this this very transactional language of products. And I find this, I think, I think it's very striking to me, right? Because, like, a lot of it is, of course, in the context of war. And in the context of war and armed conflict, like, sexual violence is very much used as a weapon. Uh, it's used in genocide, and it's the reasons behind it, of course, are rooted in misogyny and patriarch. It's very often wielded against women and girls, but not always. And a lot of the reasons why that happens has to do with, like, this desire, one of them. There are many reasons why it happens to humiliate the enemy, uh, regarding their inability to protect quote unquote their women because women are seen as the guardians of honor or something in a society within like those social constructs of like patriarchal societies and for some it's seen as a quote unquote reward for bravery we see that with the Dothraki kind of just feeling entitled to take take women and the harm that's done right one of the ways that it happens is very similar to the way that or to the reasons why Alison sought to end the practice of the first night. First of all, it's incredibly damaging to people. Second of all, like a community or people will reject a woman after she has experienced sexual violence, uh, even though they're the victim because now they're, she's seen as soiled or her value or whatever is diminished for having been assaulted. And there's a lot of that language here for Jamie's story and something of that feminization uh, uh, Chloe said earlier that emasculation which I think is really interesting again in the context of Cersei's story where she's yearning for manhood and keeps trying to put on the trappings of what she thinks masculinity is and you know you have Jamie like fainting now as stereotypes sometimes attributed to women and Brienne actually is the one who stops feeling shame about her body to catch him she's the one who is humiliated by Jamie, Jamie for her inability to protect him. And he even throws, like, you couldn't even protect Renly, right? So she's taking on that role. And it's all underpinned in this context of Jamie now being commodified in the same way that the Stark girls were. And they're very yes. much looming over this conversation. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is probably something that really makes Jamie wanting to, well, wanting Brienne to go rescue the Stark girls so much more uh, of a priority than it was before, because he realizes now what it's like to be sold. He's never had yes. to realize that. Look at Arya with uh, the the entire group here in the Riverlands. She's getting sold back to her own family until Sandor kidnaps her. Yeah, the whole time, even when Jamie knew he was kind of being sold as a hostage, he had some comfort in that, like, well, if I could just get a sword, I can get myself out of this. I can do what I want, right? Yeah. I'm Jamie Lannister, Kingsguard extraordinaire, Kingslayer extraordinaire also, whatever. But <laughs> yeah, Jamie is starting to catch that double meaning in this conversation, though. Um, Roos wants him to tell Tywin. He had nothing to do with this. That's really what it is. Bruce wants a get-out-of-jail-free card. And Jamie's like, okay, deliver me back to my sister lover and I'll do it. And Bruce is like, all right, I'm trusting you. And Jamie's like, that's weird. What is this feeling? This feeling that someone has trust within me. No one has James, ever had that feeling. Jamie's been feeling a lot of new feelings this chapter. <laughs> uh, when Jamie <laughs> is strong enough, speaking of feelings, according to Kyburn, he will leave with Walton, a.k.a. Steelshanks, the railway Steel cat. Steelshanks, the railway cat, the cat <laughs> of the railway. <sighs> Brienne's like, wait, what about me and the Stark girls? And Bruce is like, Sansa is now married to Tyrion. 
So she will not be going anywhere without her lord husband. And Brienne is reeling and Jamie has this thought. She is such an innocent. Jamie was almost as surprised, if truth be told, but he hid it better. Sansa Stark. That ought to put a smile on Tyrion's face. He remembered how happy his brother had been with his little crofter's daughter. For Aww. a fortnight. Mm. I know. Oh, Jamie, you feeling some guilt there? Yeah. Loved you for a lie, eh? Definitely. You know, there's so many reveals. Jamie's story. Layers. Like like an ogre, you know? Yeah, I don't think I ever noticed that in this chapter. I'm really glad that we pulled it out because I really don't think I noticed that, at least obviously not the first time I read it. But that is some major, like, oh, it all makes sense. His story is wrapped up in this reveal for Tyrion's. Yeah. The, all of the foreshadowing for what's going to happen to Tyrion's character at the end of this book is nested in Jamie's own chapters yes absolutely and we're gonna have a lot more of those especially in feast i think um i think storm is a lot more for jamie to find himself right with brienne but i think in feast is when it really really is strong especially juxtaposed against everything going on in Tyrion's crazy plot uh in dance it's very good and and and, i mean we've brought it up before right that jamie's story needs to be seen in the same context as taisha's because that's what's happening here in this chapter, right? We got our hints, we got our whole reveal of like, hey, turns out Jamie actually did a really good thing. But underneath that, you have the sinister undertone of, wait, what about this actually really horrible, terrible thing that he subjected this person to? And it's being hinted at. Yeah, ever since you said, let's make sure we're looking at it from Taisha's point of view too, that really changed a lot of the way I look at it because I think that is a pretty horrible crime. Like, I mean, that's akin to... Uh, the Jane Poole stuff too and we'll oh, probably yeah. talk about it then when we get to Feast but it's the same thing like if if you know something say something and I'm not saying like Liz Lemon in 30 Rock when she calls on her neighbor that definitely isn't actually like a terrorist or whatever but I'm saying like if you see something you should say something or do something and like look Sansa Stark is his last chance for honor right but like why didn't you try to cheer- care from the start dude yeah, and he was just as cowardly as all those other hands, I guess. You know, he was not better than Chelstead when it came to Taisha. No, Chelstead was a good man. Honestly. He was okay. Better than the others. <laughs> uh, true. True. But before we end the chapter, turns out Roose Bolton has one more sweet piece of hot gas for Brienne, and this time it's actually about her. Brienne, you thought that you were going to keep going from Jamie to King's Landing, but you are not. I am giving you to Fargo Hote. Roos is like, honey, remember when I said the Lannisters lied earlier? I lied too. <sighs> he didn't technically outright lie to her. He just like didn't acknowledge her and then at the end was like, by the way. He does a lot of trickery, right? Like there's like the whole like she asks if Arya, if he had Arya for certain and he shrugs and he's like, I've found a girl. She's going north. And then same thing with that. He says, Brienne, if I tell you, you and Jamie are going to be able to go on your mission, will you sit down? And she's like, yes, I will. And he's like, good, I told you. Yeah. (laughs) Roos is like, he's a dizzying person to be around. And that's probably just because of the leeches, but... (laughs) That's right. Didn't the last chapter end with like, He's into leeches. And Jamie's like, yeah, I'm sure he is. <laughs> Fucking hipster ass. Uh, but, well. That's it. 
That's, that's our the chapter. End of Jamie forever. Just kidding. Next week is the big one. Is this not the big one? They're all the big ones. Okay. I just felt like, oh wait, yeah, next week is also a big one, right? Uh. Yeah. But you know, stay tuned for whenever we drop the big one, and we don't just mean the results of eating prunes. <laughs> we mean the next podcast episode. So. Stick with us, right? Uh, follow us on social media for whenever that comes out. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N, or shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, keep your social distance from us, but don't yes. keep your social distance from subscribing to us on the many platforms you can listen to our podcast. You guys, check us out over at Podbean, where we are hosted. If you have Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify, I know they are getting a lot of work done right now for you in this time of health crises, so please subscribe to us. You will get the feed and see when episodes come out like this or like our Patreon episode for the month. You ever think about how this chapter has so many things you shouldn't do in your social distancing? Don't just scrub random people. Don't offer people prunes. I don't know. Thoughts. Um, Yes, and we are thinking about what our Patreon episode will be this month, but every month we make a Patreon episode (laughs) for $5 and up. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Oh my god! Yeah, this month we are going to announce it soon, hopefully for the patrons. So keep an eye on our Patreon feed at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. I think this month we'll be in a Song of Ice and Fire special episode. So Ice and Fire fans, if you're listening today to Jamie, get ready for a new Song of Ice and Fire special episode. Stay tuned. Yeah, sorry, I really like shot the bed in that moment. I'm I got you. So I totally was there. Did you hear that? I like just yeah, stepped I did. up. I, I saw little... your face. You're like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> it's like that time you tried to fucking count us in, and I was like, no, you should never do that. What are you <laughs> and then doing? I just choked. I was like, what is this? You guys, I, I said three. <laughs> that was it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy that Eliana's back home with us. Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. You know me. I'm Chloe. You know me. I'm Eliana. Goodbye. You should never have to count yourself in ever. It's a crime. It's You're true. too pretty to do things, Eliana. Oh, God. Oh, Get poor, beautiful, scrumptious Eliana. You've never known rejection. <sighs> That's not true, actually. I've only ever been broken up with. <laughs>